Hello, friend, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, and a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. I wrote the U-Turn book and created this podcast to help you reconnect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week I bring on a guest with the intention of helping you upgrade your confidence in work and in love. I'm also so excited to say that this episode has been sponsored in part by our friends over at Soul CBD. This is the only CBD company I have come to trust with my wellness, and they have a brand new product line that is just relief, and I've been dying to share it with you. One of my all-time favorites has quickly become their new Happy Gummies. It's H-A-P-P-I, Happy Gummies. These little gummy friends are infused with kava kava to soothe anxiousness, green tea to improve your energy, and a special blend of ingredients to help boost your mood, to reduce your stress, your restlessness, your insomnia. And of course, it's in the sweetest and the tastiest of ways. So your friends at Soul CBD have given us a discount code for money off of your order. It's 15% off, if not more, depending on the week. So just head on over to ashleystall.com slash soul. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L dot com slash S-O-U-L to access our special page with them. And don't forget to use the code U-Turn, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout. Now let's get into this week's episode. If you spend too much time awake in bed and frustrated, your brain starts to associate your bed as the place where you lay awake and worry about things. And so what starts to happen is your bed becomes a cue for that. As you start getting ready for bed, instead of your brain winding down, it starts to rev up and get ready to be awake and worry. And this is why a lot of us will be dozing off on the couch and we're like, oh, I'm sleepy. I've got to go to bed. And the second you get to bed, you're suddenly wide awake and you have no idea why. U-turn friends. Okay, so as usual, I have a really fun guest coming onto the show today to talk about a topic that is so underrated, and I'm so excited we're going to cover it. I'm bringing Diane Macedo onto the show. She's currently an anchor and correspondent for ABC News and ABC News Live. She's also the author of the book The Sleep Fix, which is out December 14th, 2021. Definitely go reserve your copy now. And you guessed it, we are going to talk about sleep. What are the different disorders? How to tell if you're deprived? What are your obstacles? Um, Probably the fact that I pee in the middle of the night. Who even knows? (laughs) (laughs) Talk about. Uh, Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I literally, I just love that you have, you know, so much going on. You have a newborn, you have your career, and you have a book about sleep. And I can only imagine that there's a lot of pressure as an expert on sleep to make sure that you were sleeping. Um, and I'm guessing that there was a time where you weren't. So what was it about your career or your life that got you so into this topic? Yeah. The irony of releasing a book about sleep when you have a newborn is not lost on me. Uh, cause of course I'm not getting a ton of it right now. Um, so let me preface by saying apologies for the mom brain if I'm ramble. Uh, but the big difference is that now I'm not getting sleep because my newborn is keeping me awake. Not I'm not getting sleep because I go to bed every night and I can't fall asleep. And that's the key. Yeah. Okay. I love that distinction. And, um, 
you know, it's funny because I come from Los Angeles before I was living here in New York and there was all these different fixes and things to help your wellness when in actuality, the basics like water and sleep are sometimes overlooked. So um, I know you talk a lot about sleep biology. Can you share a little bit about what's going on from that perspective um, for everyone to kind of understand their own sleep? Yeah. So essentially there are two main systems that drive us to wake up and fall asleep. One is your sleep drive. And you can think of sleep drive like hunger, the same way that the longer you go without eating, the more hungry you get, the more you eat, the less hungry you are. Uh, The sleep drive works the same way. The longer you're awake, the more sleep drive you build up. It's a chemical in your brain called adenosine that accumulates. It makes you sleepy. So the longer you're awake, the more sleepy you become. And then as you sleep, that adenosine dissipates and takes your sleepiness with it. So ideally, you are awake all day, you build up that sleep drive. And then when you go to sleep at night, if you get a good full night's sleep, then all that sleep drive is going to dissipate. And then you wake up the next day and you start all over again. Mm. The other process, uh, the other process is uh, something you've probably heard of before, which is your circadian rhythm. And your circadian rhythm, I think the easiest way to think of it is it's a wake drive that operates on a body clock. So it's, it's a body clock that releases wake signals to your body regardless of whether or not you slept. This is based purely on the time of day. And so what you want in a perfect world is for those two systems to work together. So you are awake all day when your body clock is sending you wake signals. So you're feeling nice and awake. And then when you go to sleep, your body starts sending you those sleep signals because it's the right time of day for you. And your sleep drive has built up because you're awake all day and you sleep at night, you dissipate that sleep drive, your circadian rhythm keeps you asleep. And then when you wake up in the morning, again, you're refreshed because your circadian rhythm is starting to send you wake signals again and because your sleep drive has dissipated. That's the way we want it to work. But as I'm sure many of your listeners are thinking right now, that's not how it always works. Yeah, I know that we live in a world, especially ever since I moved to New York, it's like I'm having that extra cup of coffee. I have a coffee at four o'clock, totally sabotaging my sleep or (laughs) candy or dessert or too much food or whatever at night. Um, There's so many habits that we all can fall into that damage sleep. And more than ever, I'm hearing about adrenal fatigue and women who are exhausted, overworked, burned out. So I'd love um, just any insight from you. I know you talk about sleep disorders in your book, so I would love to hear about those. And Also, just like, what are some of those basic things that people are doing that maybe aren't a disorder, but they're sabotaging their sleep? I think there are a lot of misconceptions around this. And so I want to start by just pointing out that whatever sleep solutions are going to be most beneficial to you really depends on the person and what the obstacles are that are keeping you awake. And I think a lot of kind of listicles and, and often television segments and so on that give sleep recommendations, they're kind of offering a one size fits all approach. And that's just unfortunately not the way it works. And while there are kind of generic, you know, everyone's going to benefit in theory by having less caffeine or everyone's going to benefit in theory by having less screen time at night, it doesn't work that way necessarily in practice because one of the biggest factors that keeps most people awake, you know, if you insomnia is the most common sleep disorder out there. And essentially, if you're being woken up by textbook insomnia, it's really your anxiety, your worries, the fact that you're just so revved up at the end of the day, that's keeping you from falling asleep at night. And 
the focus that we often put on things like cutting out our caffeine and, you know, eliminating our screen time in the evening and, you know, trying the sleepy time tea and, and doing all these things. Sometimes we work so hard to try to help our sleep. All that work just actually contributes to the arousal that's already keeping us awake mm. and making us fixate even more on our sleep. And that is much more detrimental to our sleep than the caffeine or the screen time or whatever, you know, whatever other factor it was that we were focusing on. So I think one is you really want to step back and, you know, not to be that person that's like, oh, well, you'll find the answer in my book. But chapter one of my book is sort of a quick synopsis. It's called Identifying the Problem. And it's a quick synopsis of the most common sleep disorders. And the reason I started there is because most people who don't sleep enough, assume that they have insomnia or that they're totally fine. Um, and a lot of common sleep disorders can easily be either confused for insomnia or they can coexist with insomnia. And so I wanted people to just get a really quick 101 on what some of these disorders are, because, you know, you take sleep apnea, super common, really easy to mistake for insomnia. It happens all the time. Restless leg syndrome. A lot of people are probably thinking, well, that sounds really weird. I definitely don't have that. Chances are one in four of them, you know, might. Um, a lot of these things, even narcolepsy, you know, people think they see narcolepsy in the movies and they're like, well, I don't fall asleep in my soup. So obviously I'm not a narcoleptic, but in real life, narcolepsy is much more subtle and a large, large quantity of narcoleptics, narcoleptics are walking around right now, having no idea that they even have narcolepsy. And so what I, where I want people to start is by just sort of getting a familiar, even loosely with some of these disorders, because it may set off a light bulb moment. In fact, it happened with my mother when she read the first draft of the book, she's always, you know, had sleep issues. She always, you know, called it insomnia or not even, she just thought that's how I am. And then she read the first chapter and said, Oh, this, this thing you're talking about, about the restless legs. I actually, I have that. Yeah. Um, and, and I also have restless uh, leg syndrome, which I didn't know until I started working on the book and realized as I was writing about it that, oh, wait, this is kind of me. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of people may be surprised to learn that they either have a disorder they didn't know they had, or that they have a different disorder than the one they thought they had. And of course you want to make sure you're addressing the right problem and the whole problem. The other part of that, and the reason why that's so important is uh, this goes back to my previous point is when we're addressing the wrong problem or not the, or, or just part of the problem, we often expend a lot of energy doing that. We put a lot of effort into it and that breeds frustration. And if you're doing that for a long enough period of time, you will give yourself insomnia, even if insomnia wasn't the original problem, because we spend so much time frustrated and awake in bed that we start to get frustrated automatically at bedtime because our brain starts to associate bed and bedtime with that frustration. And so that's kind of step one is just getting familiar, making sure you're addressing the right problem. And the quick sort of quickest cheat sheet I can, I can give for just that part of the equation is ask yourself what changed, what's different now from when I slept well. And that will often point you at least in the right direction of what's causing the problem. But if it doesn't give you even that much insight, it will at least help you rule out what isn't the problem. 
So for example, if you think back to your bedtime routine, which is one of those key buzzwords that everybody talks about now to fix your sleep, perfect your bedtime routine. If you think about when I slept well, what was my bedtime routine? Most people are just going to say, oh, well, I used to watch TV and then I don't know. And then I went to bed. That was it. If that was your bedtime routine when you slept well, then TV was not the problem. So you don't have to now stop your TV time in the evening in order to fix your sleep. And if anything, that might actually make your sleep worse. So you can kind of rule out, you know, if you always had that morning cup of coffee and you used to sleep fine, then unless you changed, you know, you went on a new medication or did something else that might affect your caffeine sensitivity, that cup of coffee is probably not the culprit in your sleep problems. So that's not the right place for you to start. I love that. I mean, it's so interesting, you know, there's so many different pieces of advice out there that the more you talk about like the cup of coffee or like that extra bite of sugar, it's starting to sound like piss in the wind. Like when it comes yeah. And we get so stressed out about trying to, you know, eat less sugar. And, and, you know, you, you, maybe you have that occasional four cup cup, excuse me, maybe you have that occasional four o'clock cup of coffee. I mean, it sounds like I need a four o'clock cup of coffee. No, um, you're doing great. <laughs> and, uh, and yes, that might interfere with your sleep, but if you get really worked up about that cup of coffee, then you're all worried. Oh no, I had that coffee. I wonder if I'm going to sleep. Okay. Tonight. All those thoughts zooming through your head are going to be way worse for your sleep than the actual cup of coffee that you had at four o'clock. So I just want people to kind of put it all in perspective and get a better idea of where to start so that they get the most bang for their buck when they set off on this journey, because sleep improvement begets sleep improvement. So starting in the right spot can be really helpful. And in that way, you know, if when you ask yourself what changed between when I slept well and now. You might think to yourself, oh, well, my work schedule changed. So maybe it's a circadian rhythm issue. Maybe you're now sleeping at different times of day and your body clock is not aligned with those times. So now you know that that's the problem that you have to address. Or if you moved house, you know, if you live somewhere else now, maybe it's a sleep environment issue. Maybe there's too much light coming in through your windows or or something along those lines. And that can be where you start. And that will at least put you on the right path. I love that. Okay. And, you know, it's funny. I actually also, well, it's not really funny because, you know, I know restless leg syndrome, I have it, but even a light bulb went off for me when you were talking that, um, a boyfriend that I had like years ago, we used to kind of make fun of him because he was so easy to fall asleep. And now I'm like, Oh my gosh, I think he had narcolepsy and we were just giving him such a hard time. And he doesn't even know that he probably has this, um, potentially. So I think it's so powerful that you're kind of sharing these different, not just disorders, but secret disorders. And then I also know that there's plenty of obstacles that you write about, um, you know, from your mind racing, snoring, um, working on shifts, having, you know, digestive issues like acid reflux, all of those different things. Um, I know for me, the key has been working on my anxiety because I am an anxious person. And it's funny, the way you describe tackling your sleep and and projectizing, you know, like I'm going to cut the caffeine, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Right. It kind of reminds me of my friends who are burnt out and they kind of make it a lot of work to go into their healing schedule. Yes, exactly. I'm like, don't work this hard to heal or you're just going to get burnt out on your healing plan. So I think it's the same with with sleep. And a lot of the times it's about removing something. So what are some of those obstacles, uh, especially snoring? I'm curious about, and there's also couples where maybe one snores and one doesn't, I would love your take on that and how someone can approach it because, you know, I have a partner that snores and I'm not really comfortable with earplugs and we have a sleep machine and it's like, sounds like we're in the middle of the ocean in <laughs> our place. 
<laughs> so I'd just love any of your, your thoughts on that. <laughs> Saving relationships, one sleep book at a time. Um, if I can, I do want to address the point that you made about your, your former boyfriend, because just because someone is falling asleep a lot during the day or at inappropriate times, you know, we think it's kind of normal to doze off in the waiting room, but those are all indications that something is disturbing your sleep. And that doesn't have to be narcolepsy, sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, PLMD, lots of these other more common sleep disorders will also, they essentially leave you sleep deprived without you even knowing that you're sleep deprived, which is why I call them secret sleep disorders. So it could be an indication of any number of issues. And that's where you really want to go and see a sleep specialist and get a sleep study so you can figure out what's going wrong. Uh, One also, um, you know, in addition to my long list, I'm like interrupting you with even more of a list. No, please. I'm so curious about peeing in the middle of the night. I literally am like, I need to wear adult diapers. All I do is Ah! pee in the middle of the night. Like, oh my goodness. So yeah, I'm curious, um, you know, just about these little things like that are not so little, like snoring or waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to go back to sleep, peeing, like what you think those are really about. Well, peeing in the middle of the night is called nocturia, which at least is kind of a pretty sounding word. So there's that. Um, <laughs> it kind of rhymes with gonorrhea. So I'm going to... Yeah, oh, well, yeah. It doesn't okay, sound well, fine then. I was trying to help you out here. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> fine then. We'll go with it. Um, but I'll, so I'll start with snoring, I guess, since that was where where you uh, you took me first. And then I'll kind of try to see if I can touch on all of, or at least uh, most of these. Um, snoring is a big one. And that kind of piggybacks on my last point because snoring is a big red flag for sleep apnea. And so sleep apnea, for those who aren't familiar, I say that it's to be, it should be called sleep suffocation because that's essentially what's happening. You, while you fall asleep, you stop breathing up to 100 times an hour And each episode lasts at least 10 seconds. And if you think about it, if someone was sitting over your bed and smothering you (laughs) for 10 seconds at a time throughout the whole night, you would address that immediately. But so many people have sleep apnea and either choose not to address it or they don't address it because they don't realize they have it. And snoring comes into play big here because it's one of the big red flags. But it's also a source of a myth, which is that a lot of people think, well, if I don't snore, I don't have sleep apnea. Also not true. Mm -hmm. So what you really want to look out for is that excessive sleepiness in the daytime. If you feel sleepy during the day, like you need a nap all day, you want to get checked for any number of issues in a sleep study. And one of the things they'll check for is, again, sleep apnea. You can, though, snore without having sleep apnea. And Obviously, that's still a problem because it has been shown in research that even snorers who don't have sleep apnea, their sleep is still disrupted. So this is something we often think about as only a problem for the partner of the person who's snoring or anyone else they're disturbing. But it's also a problem for the person who's doing the snoring because the snoring is interrupting their quality of sleep as well. So a few kind of quick tips um, that I got from an, a sleep uh, ENT on this guy by the name of Jordan Stern who's great. Um, he first gave a lot of solutions for allergies. And so, uh, one of the things that he said was, you know, think of, think of your allergies when you're outside in a way that we've learned to think of COVID-19, you know, you kind of want to protect the pollen from getting in. And that doesn't just apply to your nose and your mouth, but it also applies to your eyes. So if it's high in allergy season and you notice your snoring, um, correlates with being, uh, with, with your out seasonal allergies, Try things like wearing big sunglasses. You can also try nasal sprays to try to open up the nose. And that's whether it's allergy related or not. You can try nasal strips to try to open up the nose because often we think of 
um, snoring as being just a, a throat problem, but it's also often it's, it's because your nose is closed that you're breathing through your mouth. And because you open your mouth to breathe, your jaw drops, your tongue falls back, and now your airway is closed. And so just these little things of kind of opening up the nasal passages, protecting yourself from allergies can help the process a lot. The other aspect of it is positioning. A lot of people like to sleep on their back because that's how they find it most comfortable. A lot of snorers particularly like to sleep on their back. And so you can either try to do a few tricks to keep yourself from turning over onto your back because a lot of people won't have that same problem if they're sleeping in a different position. And so, I mean, this can be as basic as sewing a, sewing a tennis ball to the back of your sleep shirt so that, and when you move, when you roll over, you hit the tennis ball and then you, you know, you kind of roll back over again onto your side. You can use a wedge pillow to position yourself so your body's a little bit more elevated. That also helps with um, acid reflux. And you can also, if you are determined to sleep on your back, the one that I really had never heard of before was something called the sniffing position. And this is apparently the position that doctors will put patients in after surgery that's related to the airway. And in the sniffing position, the way to know that you're in the position is put your hands on your head, kind of sit up straight, put your hands on your head. You don't have to push down, but just kind of rest them there and then pop your chin out. And you'll see your, your head kind of snaps into a position that mimics the, what you would do if you were trying to sniff like a flower that was on a tree. And if you can, if you have to sleep on your back, then try to stack your pillows so that they put you in that position. Often people will try to use extra pillows to help with snoring, but they put them under their head and that forces your head up, forces your chin closer to your chest, which is actually the worst position for snoring. So try to put the pillows, if you're going to go with extra pillows or a wedge or something, and you're sleeping on your back so that it kind of props your shoulder up more and puts your head again in that sniffing position. And all these things, they can help a little bit, but the, the big ones are mouth guards. Cause I think a lot of people, when they think of sleep apnea, they just think of the CPAP machine. And a lot of people are like, well, that's like sleeping like Darth Vader or Bane or Bane. And I don't want that. So I'm not even going to get the study because I don't want for the doctor to tell me that I have to sleep with that machine on my face. And so I think uh, it's, it's a great, great thing for us to get the message out that that's not the only solution. And just a simple mouth guard that preferably one that's made in a doctor's office, that's custom fit to your mouth, but you can even buy boil and bite mouth guards at the store that are meant for snoring and sleep apnea. And they can actually help with both. They can help reduce the snoring, but in some cases, and, and I should say in the majority of cases, a mouth guard can actually treat your sleep apnea. So you don't even need the CPAP or any other treatment at all. Wow. That's pretty incredible. I feel like, um, I have a mouth guard and, um, the guy I'm with has a mouth guard and it feels like we're about to enter, enter the football match. <laughs> <laughs> we're putting it on for bedtime. It takes a lot of intimacy to be like, I'm going to click this in right now, but you know, good sleep is everything. Okay. So this makes me think a lot about couples because there's, you know, you made a really good point. You are, you know how to sleep well and you have a baby that's waking you up and that's just life. I have a baby in the form of a 80 pound German shepherd that like mm -hmm. likes to wake me up in the middle of the night. Um, and it's very real. It's like these outside influences. Um, what message do you have for anyone around these moments in life or these situations that are due to change, but they're in them? Is there any hacks to get more rest in between or um, rejuvenate in some way? I think it's more about trying to protect your sleep to the extent that you can. And you don't have to go 
again, crazy doing that. But for example, if you know that your dog's going to come into the room at night or jump into bed with you at night, um, and you're not willing, if you know the dog's waking you up, you know that you can keep the dog on the floor and doesn't have to sleep in the bed, or you can, you know, exile the dog out of the bedroom. But I know a lot of pet lovers and I'm one of them. Uh, you know, I, I love my animals. A lot of pet owners aren't going to want to do that. They are willing to take whatever repercussions come with sleeping with their pets. So if that's the choice that you're going to make, because that w- that's what works best for you and your family, then look at other solutions that can help you protect your sleep within the confines of that decision that you've just made. And so with pets, a great example is a lot of them have these jingly collars, right? And we don't even necessarily realize that when our pets move around at night, they're making this noise and that's disrupting our sleep, even if their movements themselves aren't. So a kind of simple, simple trick, you know, you're talking about hacks, a simple one would be to take the collar off of your pet before they come into the room. And I think people should also realize cats, are more nocturnal than dogs, and neither one of them have the same schedule as a human. So it's almost impossible to share your bed unless you have the world's most gigantic bed. Uh, It's almost impossible to share your bed with your pet and not expect them to disturb your sleep a little bit. But the idea is if you're gonna make that choice, try to take other steps to protect your sleep as much as possible. Hey, U-Turners, this episode is sponsored in part by our friends over at Organifi. My absolute favorite product has got to be their chocolate and vanilla protein powder. Due to my recent diagnosis of Lyme disease, I've been super careful with what I put in my body, and I just smiled from ear to ear when my doctor read the ingredients on the back of their protein powder and gave it the thumbs up. They are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and almost no sugar at all. It is just magical and a miracle that it tastes like anything, let alone something this good. Their chocolate protein powder I love to put in with a nut milk, cashew butter, frozen blueberries, while their vanilla is so good with peanut butter, frozen strawberries, and nut milk in the blender. This smoothie is my absolute fix when I'm hungry anytime or when I have a sweet tooth. It's just so good. I mean, here's the thing. It's tempting to turn to that second or third cup of coffee, but the truth of the matter is that caffeine can only do so much. At some point, we need to look at the root cause of our fatigue, and it turns out that the two main factors in low energy are chronic stress and a lack of nutrition. Organifi's clean, organic superfood blends address these problems head-on with adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms to help you balance your cortisol levels associated with stress And they make it so much easier with one scoop of protein power to add so many more nutrients into your diet every single day. If you'd like to grab yourself some protein powder or really any of their magical products, just head on over to Organifi.com slash U-Turn. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N. And make sure you use the code U-Turn, again, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout for 20% off. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Love that. Okay. Yeah. I need to definitely put my dog in his place. I just sent him to a training and told the woman, I'm like, he's running my life. Like he is (laughs) running my life. (laughs) I don't think you're alone there at all. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I know that in addition to obstacles, one thing that you write about in your book is um, sleep myths and how to kind of separate fact from fiction. Like for example, 
not everybody needs eight hours of sleep. I know that I do, but you know, there's plenty of friends I have where I'm like, you're killing it with six hours of sleep and you feel good. So what is that about? Is it an age thing? Is it a genetic thing? I would just love to hear anything that you know about that. The eight hour thing drives me a little bit crazy and, and sleep clinicians will tell you the same. Um, this idea, it's probably the biggest myth that's permeated in sleep science, this idea that we all need, quote, the recommended eight hours of sleep. And the reason why it's like saying that everybody needs the same amount of food to be full. It's just not true. And the reason why it's so problematic is twofold. On the one hand, you've got a bunch of people who actually don't need eight hours of sleep. Maybe six hours is your number. Maybe six and a half hours is your number. But if you're a six hour person and you're trying to get eight hours of sleep, you're going to be spending a lot of time awake in bed because we can't force feed ourselves sleep. You can't force yourself to sleep more than you actually need. So you just end up kind of fragmenting your sleep along those eight hours. You'll either take a really long time to fall asleep or you'll wake up throughout the night or you'll wake up too early because your body, you're trying to force yourself to get eight hours sleep when your body is really only meant to have, let's say six, that can give you insomnia. Mm. And that's the part that a lot of people don't know. If you spend too much time awake in bed and frustrated, your brain starts to associate your bed as the place where you lay awake and worry about things. And so what starts to happen is your bed becomes a cue for that. As you start getting ready for bed, instead of your brain winding down, it starts to rev up and get ready to be awake and worry. And this is why a lot of us will be dozing off on the couch and we're like, oh, I'm sleepy. I've got to go to bed. And the second you get to bed, you're suddenly wide awake and you have no idea why. Mm. That is the calling card of, of chronic insomnia. And what's happening there is conditioned arousal. And it's caused essentially by spending too much time awake and active in bed, active, meaning mentally active. And so the eight hour myth just perpetuates that even more. And it gives people something else to be anxious about while they're lying awake in bed. Cause everyone just keeps thinking, Oh my God, I need those eight hours. I'm going to be doomed. And now I only have seven hours left until I'm supposed to wake up. And all of that just ends up keeping us awake even longer. The flip side of that is there are a lot of people out there with sleep disorders who get, or at least think they get the quote recommended eight hours of sleep. And so even though they might be exhibiting other symptoms, i.e., you know, you're the person that dozes off in the waiting room or on the subway on your way home every day, they don't ever think of themselves as someone who might have a sleep problem because they're getting the recommended eight hours. Mm -hmm. So it's one, it's, it's, that's why I kind of say that that is the biggest and maybe most dangerous myth in sleep science, because it has this sort of twofold negative effect. Mm. Okay. And I also heard somewhere that being a morning person is kind of genetic and like not everyone is designed to be like the 5 a.m. club. Do you have anything to say on that? Oh, a hundred percent. I agree completely with everything that you just said. And as a night owl, this was personal to me. Both of these things were personal to me because I am someone who needs less than eight hours of sleep and I am a natural night owl. Mm -hmm. And so making me feel like I was somehow irresponsible or I lacked discipline because I have a general tendency to want to fall asleep late and wake up late. It riddles you with guilt. Yeah. And then you, you're not getting the eight hours that you're supposed to get and you feel terrible. And again, you blame yourself for it. And that, again, just feeds in to all of the problems and the worries that you have that are keeping you awake. So 
the the idea of being a morning person or being a night owl is something called your chronotype. It's part of your biology. And if you think about what it's like to be a night owl who has to wake up early in the morning for something, it's the equivalent of how you feel when you're jet lagged. If you go to another country in a different time zone, you're now trying to fall asleep and wake up at a time that your body, you're trying to fall asleep at a time your body wants to be awake and you're trying to wake up at a time your body wants to be asleep or vice versa. That's how it feels for a lot of people who have to wake up early every day to go to work at a time that their body wants to be asleep or have to try to go to sleep to get their eight hours. They try to go to sleep early enough to sleep enough before that wake up time and their body's sending them all types of wake signals. And when we try to force past that, we often then give ourselves insomnia. And now you have two problems. You have a circadian rhythm disorder and you have insomnia, which is exactly what happened to me. Now, that said, a lot of sleep scientists will then talk about circadian rhythm as if it's this immovable obstacle. And there's some truth to that in that we can't change what our chronotype is other than get older. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves biologically a morning person or a night owl or anything in between. What you can do, though, is change your schedule to better suit your biological rhythm. And for all the people that are rolling their eyes right now, hear me out, because I realize that's not realistic for most people, including myself. But the next best thing is to trick your body into thinking you changed your schedule. And that is actually surprisingly doable. And it's a part of sleep science that most, it just never really makes the cut in terms of giving people recommendations. And it was a game changer for me as not only a natural night owl now working normal hours that still force me to work, wake up earlier than my body wants to, but as a night shift worker, which I was for many, many years. And as soon as I learned some simple tricks about when to see light, when to eat, when to exercise and so on. It completely changed my sleep and it completely changed my life. Mm, okay. This is exactly where I want to ask about A, what, what are some of those things? And B, the external things that are kind of on the market right now, like melatonin, um, weed, wine. I, you know, if I had a penny for every girlfriend that was like, a glass of wine helps me sleep, I would love your feedback on all of those little outside tools and, and what your take is on them. So I'll start with, um, first I'll start with, with what you, what you want to look at and, and what you want to do. And the number one thing for anybody facing a circadian rhythm issue is to realize that light is the most powerful tool to signal to your body clock when it's time to be awake. And the absence of light is the most powerful tool to signal to your body clock when it's time to be asleep. So for most people, this becomes a problem in terms of having trouble falling asleep and then having trouble waking up in the morning. So I'll first address that part of the equation. And what that crew wants to do is you want to try to see bright light first in the morning. That is sending your body clock this clear signal. Boom. It's time to be awake now. And the common recommendation or the ideal recommendation is to get sunlight for at least 30 minutes. But I don't know about you. I don't have a spare 30 minutes in the morning to go sunbathing or even eat breakfast outside or, or work out outside or any of the above. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say most people who have sleep problems and struggle with waking up early are going to be those of us who are less likely to have those extra 30 minutes in the morning. Right. So in order to 
approach this with a more practical, you know, solution, I got a sun therapy lamp. You know, sometimes they're called sad lights that you literally can get them on Amazon or almost uh, any big retailer. And they're just bright lights. They look like mine looks like a Kindle or some other kind of e-reader with a stand on it that makes it look, stands up like a picture frame. And I just plug it into the wall and I actually put it in my bathroom every morning. And so while I'm getting ready and doing my hair and doing my makeup, literally taking zero extra time out of my day, I'm also getting this bright light, which is communicating to my brain that it is morning and it is time to wake up. Mm -hmm. And just simple tricks like that can make a huge difference. As a night shifter, wearing sunglasses at the right time when I left work in the morning, which for me was my evening, literally just wearing sunglasses made a dramatic difference. And it's been shown in studies to have a very dramatic impact. Some people claimed over an hour of extra sleep just by wearing sunglasses at the right time on their night shift. Mm. And so these small changes can make a deceptively big difference. Um, The other part of it for me was to kind of figure out what I knew I didn't, I wasn't going to do. And I think this is also, again, an important part in figuring out what solutions are going to work best for you. Food and food meal timing are another thing, less powerful than light, but they're another thing that give your body cues as to when you're supposed to be awake and when you're supposed to be asleep. But I knew that I'm a foodie. And at the time, having terrible insomnia, I found a lot of my comfort in food, which is very common. When you're not sleeping well, you crave food and you crave bad food at that. And so for me, trying to kind of perfect my diet was going to be a big sacrifice. And I decided that's not the right place for me to start. But somebody else might decide that it is. And so meal timing and when you eat your meals can be a big factor in trying to tell your body when it's supposed to be awake and when it's supposed to be asleep. And piggybacking off the light point is darkness. This is why we often hear about you know, screen times at night and having to not look at screens in the evening. That whole talk is about trying to make sure your circadian rhythm knows that it's nighttime. But if you're getting enough light during the day, you're going to have a sharp contrast between the amount of light you're getting in the daytime and the amount of light you're getting at night. So that little amount of light you're getting from your TV or your screens or a few lights on in the house is not going to make the ultimate difference. What you do want to do is just limit the light as much as you possibly can within like within reason, right? If you have all the lights on in your house on all the way and you have dimmer switches, then turn the lights down. If you're watching TV, don't have the lights on at that time. The more you can create a contrast, the better. And in the case of light, obviously the contrast is between light and dark. You want your body to know when it's time to be awake with light and when it's time to be asleep with dark. With food, you obviously don't want to be eating in the middle of the night because you're not programmed to eat and sleep at the same time. Um, There are caveats to that as well, though, which is what I found, right? If I didn't eat at all, I had a really hard time staying asleep if I went to bed hungry, which is contrary to a lot of advice that tells you not to eat X hours before bed. And so for me, I had to find it. I had to find what worked for me. And that was often to just have a light sleep friendly snack before bed. When it comes to melatonin, which is um, a big one. Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm, I'm no, you're not. trying to just cover a lot of ground here. No, I'm like sitting here listening, just like, oh my God, my sleep. Like I'm thinking about my little sleep machine and my special breathe oil that helps my nose open. And I'm just like, okay, I got to read this book as soon as you have it on the shelves. Like it's just, I'm Kathy. Yeah, you, Tell me you, more. 
if you feel revved up when you're going to sleep at night and you're doing a lot, chances are you're doing too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to get to melatonin because you asked about it and I think it's a big one. Sleep medications in general, I think are largely misunderstood, but none more so than melatonin, in my opinion. People think of melatonin as like the safe, natural form of ambient, as if you're just going to take a melatonin and then you're going to pass out and your insomnia or whatever the sleep problems you have is going to be gone. And unfortunately, that's not the way it works. And again, that can backfire on those of us who are desperate for a solution because we take our melatonin and we wait for it to have that effect that everyone says it's going to, and then it doesn't. And we think of ourselves as being even more broken. And that just makes our problem even worse. What melatonin is essentially, I compare it to like the mom telling the kids that it's time to go to bed. Melatonin tells your body that it's nighttime, but it doesn't make you sleep. It Mm. does have a little bit of a drowsy effect, but ultimately all melatonin is doing is sending a signal to your body that it's nighttime and it's time to prepare for your nighttime activities. The same way mom tells the kids that it's time for bed, but she can't actually make the kids sleep as so many mothers out there will lament. So for those of us who don't have a problem with our body knowing that it's nighttime, our problem is that our usual nighttime activity is staring at the ceiling, frustrated and awake. Mm. For that crowd, taking melatonin at night is not going to help you fall asleep. If you have a very, very slight problem, maybe every now and then you just feel a little revved up, that little drowsiness that melatonin can give you can be helpful to some. But you're not now talking about people with real insomnia that regularly have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. Where melatonin can be really useful is when you have a circadian rhythm disorder. Mm. If you're jet lagged, if you're a shift worker, that kind of a thing. Because melatonin, again, in those cases, your problem is that your body doesn't realize that it's nighttime and it's time to sleep. So melatonin can help give it that extra signal to get your body clock back in sync with your sleep schedule. The trick here though, is you can't take it at bedtime to use it this way. What you actually need to do is take melatonin four to five hours before your bedtime is is the recommendation. Or if you're trying to shift your clock in the other direction, you take it in the morning. But a lot of people, again, are using melatonin as something that they pop before bedtime and they go to bed. You're, You're really not helping your case very much at all if you're trying to use it to shift your clock and you're taking it at bedtime. I love what you're sharing because melatonin for me, I was kind of scared asking you about it because it was one of those things where I was like, I don't want to know the answer if you're about to tell me no, because melatonin for me has been the thing when I travel where it's like my super proof jet lag Mm. superpower. It's like, okay, I'm going to take melatonin, not five hours, usually at least a couple hours before I want to go to sleep. And it always gets me right on the time zone. And it's like a little magic trick. Um, So I love that you're sharing that, that it's not that I you know, that dynamic where it's just about telling your body it's time for night. Is is there anything about hydration that you wrote about in your book that you can kind of share? Because, you know, A, as somebody who pees 700 times in the middle of the night, as I was just complaining, but also um, I know that you get dehydrated in your sleep. I read somewhere that you lose a liter of water from your breath in the in the night. Is that true? Oh, I don't know. I never heard that one. That's another myth that I'll have to look up. Or maybe it's not a myth. I'll have to look that one up. You've stumped yeah. me. Yeah, good. Look at me. I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> uh, I'm just here to come in hot. Yeah, no. I, 
I'm always just curious about these things. A so- leader of your body, of your, I mean, you do wake up dehydrated. That's a, that's a natural thing. How, whether or not you lose a liter of, of water, I, ooh, that one I'll have to look up. Also, tell me a little bit about these counterintuitive approaches. Like you talked about a caffeine nap or sleep retraining. Like what can we, um, everybody who's listening now, you know, they're probably thinking like, okay, is it restless legs? You know, um, is it this, is it that, um, what are some unexpected approaches to start shifting this? It's again, it, it really depends on what, on what the problem is. Yeah, But I think the biggest thing that people underestimate, and you've probably figured out by everything else I've said so far, I think the big thing that people underestimate is how much sort of anxiety, excitement, stress, you know, that that arousal factors in to everything. And so often the solution is to do less. And if you do see some warning signs, chief among them, sleepiness during the day, then you really want to get checked out and see what it is. And I, and I want to kind of preface everything I've said today with, you know, despite the fact that I, I just talked about how to take melatonin, there are detailed instructions in the book. You still always want to talk to your doctor mm. to make sure that melatonin, for example, can interact with medications. So just because it's often talked about as being this harmless thing, you want to make sure that it's not going to be the harmful to you because it, it very well may be. Even light therapy for some people can have adverse effects. So you want to clear everything by your doctor first. And then if you are taking any substance, you talked about weed and wine before, if you're taking any substance to try to help yourself fall asleep, you're going to want to do so under the guidance of a sleep specialist. Mm. Do not use wine or weed or melatonin or Benadryl or any other sleeping pill unless you're using it under the guidance of a sleeping of, of a sleep specialist. And I include primary care physicians in that. If your primary care physician is not adequately trained to treat sleep problems, most of them are not, then you should try to avoid taking sleeping pills un- until you can get the guidance of a sleep uh, specialist as well. Love this um, so much. I-, I say that because a lot of us, including me, we go to our primary care physician, our primary care physicians who are wonderful doctors, and mine is a wonderful doctor, they're just not really equipped to treat sleep problems. They, on average, four-year medical medical schools spend two hours teaching about sleep. And it was actually a primary care physician who first encouraged me to write this book. And so sleeping pill is often the easiest tool they have at their disposal, but it's not, it's very, very rarely the best course of treatment for any sleep disorder. Got it. Okay. And I know anxiety. I've heard a lot of friends who have general anxiety and they're medicated for that. Sometimes they have something to sleep because it's so real for them that they have something that is inside of them that hasn't fully regulated and they're struggling to get their mind calm. Um, but yeah, it, everything you're saying, said, I want to ask about REM, deep sleep, and also biphasal sleeping. I once had a, I was seeing a guy who was like, I'm biphasal when he was up at weird hours, in my opinion. So what does it mean to have these other sort of sleep rhythms? And um, how do you know if you are lacking in deep sleep or REM sleep? And why do these things matter? Um, I think the short answer is, for the most part, you don't. Mm-hmm. That falls into the category of you want a professional to take a look at that. Because okay. when it comes to detailing exactly how much deep sleep you're getting versus how much REM sleep you're getting versus how much light sleep you're getting 
That, at least until this point, is where sleep trackers fall short. But it's also where we can get a little too obsessed with your sleep. If you're at a point where you're looking and examining exactly how much REM and and deep sleep and whatnot you're getting, you can give yourself something called orthosomnia. This is a, a, a new term. And it's essentially a new form of insomnia that's come about essentially because of sleep trackers and just this new movement as sleep finally being recognized as a center of health. But essentially what orthosomnia is, is people just becoming too obsessed with perfecting their sleep and their sleep trackers contribute to that because they go home and they're constantly looking and seeing how much did I get? How much does it say? How much REM? How much deep? How much this? How much that? And all of that thought now that's going into sleep gives people insomnia who frequently uh, will often give insomnia to someone who never had it. So you'll have someone, for example, who sleeps six hours and 45 minutes a night, and that was perfectly fine for them. Now, because they're obsessing over weight, but I need to get those eight hours, they will start to see their sleep often decline. And now they have to go to a sleep specialist and get their sleep problem treated, which they are having solely because they're trying too hard to perfect their sleep. So I really don't advise that people get into the whole nitty gritty of trying to analyze how much REM sleep they're getting or how much deep sleep they're getting. Just analyze how you feel. Mm. When you wake up in the morning, are you extremely groggy? Uh, Throughout the course of the day, more importantly, how do you feel? Do you feel like you need a nap all day long? Or do you feel okay? If you feel okay, you're probably getting enough sleep. And if you don't, and you're, again, someone who feels like you're really sleepy all day long, then you want to get that checked out by a professional. Mm. And you don't want to be relying on your sleep tracker to tell you whether or not you, for example, have sleep apnea. Well, this has been quite a conversation. I feel like there's probably a thousand things I haven't asked you. And, you know, there are a thousand things you did ask me that I didn't get to yet, too. Oh, my gosh. Don't even worry. I would love to hear. Is there something I didn't ask you that we need the world to know? Or do you feel like I covered this topic and everybody just has to pick up the book? December 14th, everybody. It's happening. There's so much swirling around in my head with this book that it's so hard to just boil it all down. Um, But I just think that people, I just hope that people realize that if you either have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or you just feel like you're not getting good quality sleep because you feel, you know, sleepy during the day, do not assume that that's just how you're built. So many of us, including me, make that mistake. And for years and years and years, we can endure sleep problems that we really don't have to. These are problems that can be resolved. In many cases, they can be resolved by us making simple behavior changes. And if that doesn't fix your problem, you can go see a specialist and they really can help you. So I just want people to know that if you are suffering, there is a solution out there and and you can go seek it. Don't feel like you just have to endure that problem. So helpful. Where can everyone find you? You sound like a woman with many different hats. So which hat can we go find you in? (laughs) Thank you. Well, uh, I am on pretty much all the social media platforms as uh, at Diane R. Macedo. So D-I-A-N-E-R-M-A-C-E-D-O. And you can buy the Sleep Fix as of December 14th. It is available where all books are sold and you can uh, pre-order it now. And with pre-orders, um, oh, actually, I guess I don't know when this is going to air. So when this airs, it may already, uh, it may already be up for, up for sale. 
But uh, it's available December 14th. And in the event this airs before the um, release date, there is a free gift with purchase um, of every pre-ordered copy. So I hope that everybody goes out and grabs a book. And more importantly, I hope that it's as helpful as I designed it to be. It's the book that I wish had existed when I had sleep problems. And I really just wrote it because I'm on a mission to try to prevent people from having to go through the struggle that I went through. Mm, I'm so glad that you're getting good sleep and you know how to do it. And congrats on your baby. What better thing to know as a new mother than how to sleep when you're up in that (laughs) world. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ashley. Sweet dreams to you (laughs) and your German shepherd. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And again, thank you so much to our sponsors, Organifi, Soul CBD, SaneBox, and so much more. We are here because of you and our listeners. Thanks so much for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people we trust and for listening to the show, for writing reviews. Can't wait to talk to you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.